So hello everyone, it's good to be back. Um, Yehuda Geberer, and we're going to further our uh, Holocaust uh, studies in this uh, further lecture. And um, no more appropriate time than the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av to talk uh, and try to learn about and be inspired by the lessons of our somewhat tragic past, but there's lots of... Uh, lights of inspiration among the amidst all the darkness and uh, although there's plenty to learn from the darkness itself also because it's a a time of Khurban. If you notice then in the Kinnis we're gonna say on Tishuba, most of the Kinnis focuses on actually the, the dark, dark darkness. Usually ends off with like a, a hopeful note and a lighter thing, but there's actually a you know, just to even to certain times of the year to um, to dwell on something darker is also not, you know, not just to look for the, we have plenty of time the rest of the year to look for light. Once, once in a while we could be a little bit, you know, uh, in our natural Galician or bitter selves, you know. Uh, so, so um, try to do a little bit of both today. Um, the topic of today is actually, after speaking here so many times and going through so many topics, is actually one of my favorites. I got very excited when we discussed the topic and uh, decided to speak about the Ringelblum Archive in the Warsaw Ghetto. It's called, alternatively, the Oinig Shabbos Archive, which is what the archivists themselves refer to it as. And today we sometimes refer to it as the Ringelblum Archive, named for the historian who established the archive and oversaw it through its... Uh, years of activity, Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum. And this is a very, very special story, um, which I'll try to cover as much as I can. Besides from my notes, which I have on my phone today, um, I also brought a book. So we'll have story time, and this lecture is a mix of a lecture and a book review, um, because I'm actually going to read passages from this book, which I never do. I never do it in any other lecture, except when I talk about the archive, because... Professor Samuel Kasov, who is a professor at um, some place in America, Connecticut somewhere, one of these uh, one of these Charles Northern Professor of History at Trinity College, Connecticut. Good. All right. So if it's not Ivy League, no one here heard of it anyway. So, so the but he's he's a, an incredible researcher, and I heard him speak live a few times. Um, and he wrote this book, Who Will Write Our History? And the entire book is devoted to the story of the Oynik Shabbos Ringelblum Archive in the Warsaw Ghetto. And it is the best book on the topic. It to be one of the best books in general on Jewish history because it's not, as the title implies, it's not uh, just about the Warsaw Ghetto, but it explores how do we write history and how do we create a record and what's important and and, and, and how are we, ourselves, who are participants of history, right? In a hundred years from now, people are researching our time, we're the participants, and we decide now. The actions we do and the record we leave is creating history. And therefore, what do we leave behind? And, and, it's a, and, it, and that's the question. And that, that's why it's a, it's a question. Who's going to write the history? Because if we think specifically about the Holocaust for a second, what type of sources do we have? How do we know the story of the Holocaust? What do you guys think? Not everyone at once. It hurt, you know, I can't handle it. Uh, yeah? So, 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 so
Nazis themselves. Okay, so you said two two sources. Let's go through both those sources. Those are the two main sources we have. I would say, I don't know, 90% of the sources we have, maybe a little less, comes from those two are the main sources, survivor testimony, and Nazi sources. Are those two great sources? They're good sources. I wouldn't call them great. What would be the limitation of each one of those? Let's start with the survivors that you said, which is a fantastic source. And I use it all the time. And any researcher, all those memoirs and books, and today we can still even speak to them. And if you haven't, you should try to get the opportunity to speak to one of them because there's not that many left. And in a few years, there'll be zero left. So it's an absolutely amazing resource. But what are the limitations of that? Is that most often they're giving their, their testimony many years later. And it's not their fault. No one cared and no one wanted to know their story earlier and we should have been better at getting their stories earlier. And with time and age and, and the lapse between the events, so a lot of details are missing and certain context and, and, and it's a limitation on what we can get out of it. A second limitation is, is the fact that they survived, which is not a terrible thing. It's a fantastic thing that they survived. But very, very few people survived. It's a very small, limited slice of the picture. Almost all Jews who went through the Holocaust were victims. They were killed. And we don't get to have their story. We only get those few who survived. So that's another limitation, correct? So even though it's an amazing resource, and we love using it, and it gives us a really rich picture of the story, but it's limited. The second source you mentioned is is the Nazi records. And they left great records, and we captured, the Allied forces captured most of them. And it leaves a lot of detail about what the Nazi final solution was and how it was implemented in the ghettos and the camps, and even train lists of people who were deported, and all kinds of other things. And, uh, and uh, amazing, I mean, Yad Vashem's archive is full of it, the Allison archive in Germany is even more stuff from the Nazis, uh, the Auschwitz uh, camp archive is full of Nazi records and all over. What would be the limitation of that resource? That's even more obvious. <laughs> that it's the Nazis who kept the records. And they only kept what was important to them. They saw the Jews, the victims that they were exterminating as subhuman. And therefore they were only important as a number, as statistics, as how, as how they're carrying out the final solution but we don't get any inkling as to how their lives were and what was going on in their lives and who these victims were and what kind of story they told. So the Nazi archives, even though they're written in real time, so they don't have the limitations that we mentioned in the first source, but real time, it's giving us also a very limited picture. Possibly the greatest source we can have is if the victims themselves, in real time, would tell us their story of what's happening to them as it's happening. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Is there any, uh, sorry, is there any big book on anything the Nazis wrote themselves, or generally just whatever they wrote is accurate? Like they said it was 100 people, 100 people, they didn't know... There's plenty of... That's an excellent question. There's plenty of times where they're inaccurate. They're either inaccurate because even the Nazis made mistakes, even the German accurate Nazis made plenty of mistakes, loads... That's one reason for inaccuracy. Another reason was sometimes they deliberately would change the record when it did not look favorably for them. 
such as, we talk about Warsaw, we'll get to the specific case of Warsaw in just a minute. But most people, one of the reasons why this is such an important story is because most people, when they talk about the Warsaw Ghetto, they focus on a one-month period all the way at the end of the Warsaw Ghetto, not the three years before that. What's that one-month period? The uprising, which is a great story, but you know we'll get to the three years before that too. But after, during the uprising, the first few days of the uprising did not bode well for the Nazis. They had a bunch of starving, weak, untrained, no military trained Jews who were throwing homemade Molotov cocktails and using handguns against the army that conquered Europe, who had howitzers and artillery and machine guns and some of the best trained troops in the world. And these little skinny Jews managed to kill a bunch of SS. Now that SS unit was required to file a report, which we have. Now, can, now do you think that SS report is going to contain the accurate number of casualties sustained by the SS during that initial battle? Probably not, because they have a very strong incentive to say, oh, one or two were killed, nothing really significant, when it's very likely that tens were killed. I don't know about hundreds. I don't know if the records that uh, were kept in the Jews, they wanted to say how many they killed, but it's probably somewhere in the middle. So that would be an instance where they deliberately would change the records. So the Nazi records aren't perfect either, and that would be another limitation, but that's a limitation everyone. But in general, well, what? I mean, from a historical perspective, they're probably pretty good. Yeah, 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 they definitely are pretty good. Like any any government keeping a record of what they're... Again, if we look at it from the Nazi point of view, and it's very wrong to look at it from their point of view for a second, but just for a second, they, the SS see themselves as a government bureaucracy um, who's carrying out a government function um, because this is important for the country, for the, for the German people, for the future of the state, to exterminate the Jews. So they're a government office uh, who keeps records of what they do. Um, so that's, again, from a Nazi perspective. So the, the, the records would be pretty accurate, but it's going to give a very limited view of what we would want. Like I said, the ideal thing would be is if we would go back to the victims and we would tell them, you know, just we future historians, we really, really want to know your story. So as all these terrible tragedies are happening to you, keep an accurate record of everything that's going on. And even though you're all going to die, but at least you'll leave this record behind and we'll know your whole story and it will enrich our knowledge of you and your story and we will be able to be inspired by it. We will be able to learn the lessons from it. We will be able to be a better Jewish people with a stronger Jewish identity because of it. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we would be able to go back and do that? And that's what actually happened in Warsaw. One of the only places that it happened. There was instances in many other places, in Covenantville, where it was on a limited scale, but at an organized, systematic, professional scale, only in Warsaw because of one man, Dr. Emanuel Ringelblum, who, as a historian, he had this incredible sense of history. And he organized this very, very professional archive, which took in the spectrum of Warsaw Jewry, from everyone he could possibly gather material from. He stores it, he has it stored under buildings in the Warsaw Ghetto, and 90% of the archive was recovered after the war. Over 30,000 documents. Most of the pictures were ruined because uh, water seeped into a lot of these, but the writings were not. 
and we have all the writings today. We have some, we have 60, 70 pictures also got, and paintings and documents, and and he 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 was so, I'm going to go into more detail as we go along, but just to give you an idea, he wanted everything to be in there. Nothing was was trivial. Nothing was insignificant. He saw children who had candy in the ghetto. So he said, future historians are going to want to know that there was candy in the ghetto and what type of candy it was. He asked them for the wrappers and put it into the archive. There were rich people in the ghetto. The Warsaw Ghetto, where close to 100,000 Jews died of starvation and disease, there were also rich Jews who had either savings from before the war because they were very wealthy, or because they, they did business in the ghetto. There was a whole underworld of smuggling operations where there was like, you know, some of them were real gangster criminals. Some of them meant to actually help and try to get food in, and they made a business out of it. So they were wealthy. Well, what did wealthy Jews do in the Warsaw Ghetto? Well, everyone's looking for jobs. So some people opened a restaurant, restaurants that the wealthy Jews of the ghetto patronized. So there's people dying on the streets, and there's also people eating duck and, and, and steaks in the restaurants of the ghetto. So Ringelblum wanted people to know that, that there was a diversity of Jewish life in the ghetto, economic life. He was a bit of a Marxist. So economics was his... Uh, was the, he was sec- secular, secular and a Marxist. So, you know, if we would meet him, we'd probably... <laughs> but because he did such a great service uh, for the Jewish people, we still like him, even though he was a Marxist. So he, everything was economics. Everything he, all his writings, all his, everything he always was calculated because Marxists, Marxists are obsessed with economics. Not that they ever did a great job with economics, but they still, still doesn't make them not obsessed with it. So, um, so he he got a menu from one of these restaurants and put it in the archives. So you should know what was on the menu in the. Uh, he had doctors submit their medical reports. We want to know how many Jews died of typhus. How many? Jews. He had researchers do. He hired a group of Jewish. Now, now before the Warsaw is the center of Jewish life before the war. It's the Yerushalayim or Tel Aviv or New York, whatever your favorite of those three is. If your favorite is Baltimore, it still not doesn't make it into the top three. But but it, 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 the, it, it was the center of Jewish life. That was Warsaw before the war. And and this was where the great center of religious life, political life, economic life, education, numbers, just by demographics. It was nearly 400,000 Jews living in Warsaw uh, before the war. And the ghetto comprised of the Jews of Warsaw, plus the Nazis emptied out the small ghettos a year into the war, a year and a half into the war, the small ghettos of the suburbs of Warsaw, places like Ger, Otvats, Piazetsna, other places, these little suburb towns of Warsaw, they emptied out the small ghettos and dumped all the Jews inside. So the Warsaw ghetto population was even bigger than the pre-war Warsaw Jewish population. It was nearly a half a million Jews at its peak. And in there you have a full gamut of Polish Jewry in this urban environment, and there were professors uh, at universities before the war. So you have scientists and doctors and rabbis and rebbes and simple people and, and tailors and bankers and real estate and beggars and, and Hasidim and se- socialists and communists and secularists, Zionists, assimilationists, uh, Jews who consider themselves Poles, who spoke Polish at home, no Yiddish, who were ready to intermarry 
Christian, you know, Polish Catholics, but the Nazis consider them Jews. They're in the ghetto too. Some of them had already converted to Catholicism. And they didn't even know why they were in the ghetto. There was a church in the Warsaw ghetto where Jews who had converted or their parents converted, so they consider themselves Christian, would go on Sunday and have, and have, and, and go to church. And those Jews are eventually killed in Treblinka too. Because the Nazis consider them Jews. So the Warsaw Jewish population is incredibly diverse. And Ringelblum says, I want the whole picture. I want everything inside. Because he un- understands, he understands what's going on, he has this sense of history, and, and, he, and he, he wants it all in there. So he hired at one point a group of researchers to interview doctors and patients. Of, there were three Jewish hospitals in the Warsaw Ghetto. They had the best physicians, but they didn't have a lot of material. They had not, you know, no hygienic conditions, and they, and they, and they did not have medicine. Excuse me. I think I once spoke about uh, doctors and medicine in the Holocaust. I spoke about that then. Um, but 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 he had them do conduct a a research, and people submitted papers, like scientific medical papers, without textbooks, with that. Unbelievable what's going on um, about the effects of malnutrition on the population on pregnant women, on children, on different segments of the population and how it affects them differently and the death rate and what doctors are able to do for them. An amazing, I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling what he, what he has in there from the very, very significant to the trivial and everything in between. And, and um, he, he organizes the archive at the beginning of the Nazi occupation even before the ghetto is established. But it becomes more formal when the ghetto is established. In November 1940, the Warsaw Ghetto is sealed off. There are, like I said, a population of over 400,000, eventually nearly half a million. They're on 2.3 of the city's street grid. 2.3%, excuse me, of the city's street grid. They're a third of the city's population, and they're on 2.3% of the city's street grid. So the conditions in the Warsaw Ghetto are, are overcrowded, there are five to six families uh, living together in one apartment. And Ringelblum wants to know also about the social life, right? So you tell people at the Warsaw Ghetto, yeah, they suffered, they starved, they had disease, and they were sent to Treblinka to be gassed. That pretty much summed up the entire story of the Warsaw Ghetto. Ringelblum says, well, well, there are five to six families living per apartment. What did that look like? What were the dynamics? How did people manage? Did they get along with each other? Did they hate each other? Were political and religious differences from before the war resolved because everyone's now stuck in the same border? Or was it a continuation and everyone bickered and complained like Polish Jews did for thousands of years? What happened? He wanted to know. He assembles a team of over 60 archivists who all are contributing. They're writing diaries. They're They're gathering documents. They find materials from... Each one had their expertise. We'll get to specifics soon. I'm going to read you parts of it, what people, different different members contributed. He wanted all different... He had a teacher, he had a rabbi, he had a, a socialist, he had a, a women, he had children, he had elderly, he had, he had um, um, intellectuals and he had commoners. He, would, he had his archivists interview people, go around interviewing people, asking them to contribute materials to the archive. He said, you know, a lot of this is going to get lost. And uh, we can save it, we can preserve it. The archive had to be kept a secret, so he's very careful 
who he told, who and his archive, his team, who they told what to. That's the reason it was called the Oynik Shabbos Archive, because, again, most of them were secular. There were some religious Jews as members also. He specifically recruited several rabbis and religious Jews to be part of the archive because he wanted to get that aspect of Jewish life in the ghetto as well. But their meetings were generally Shabbos afternoon. That's when they would meet. That's when they had time to meet and, and discuss their goals for the week. So they nicknamed, uh, the code name for the archive was the Oynig Shabbos Archive. The, the, you know, that's when they, as a, you know, they, so they like, it sounds like some sort of social fraternity and they could keep the archive a secret because they were concerned that the Nazis would get their hands on it and, uh, you know, the evidence is there. Um, so, um, the, in fact, in, here in Israel, when, when I, uh, I correct uh, Israelis, when they, when they refer to the archive, they call it Archeon Oneg Shabbat, right? I said, not once did Ringelblum or anyone in the ghetto refer to it as Oneg Shabbat. It's Archeon Oneg Shabbos. That's how they called it. And Kasev, who's a completely secular Jew in, in, in Connecticut, he refers to it as Oynig Shabbos in the book and when he speaks. So the correct way to say it is Oynig Shabbos. If you don't like it, then call it Archeon Ringelblum. Not, not, uh, not Oynig Shabbat. You know what I mean? So, but that's a side point. And uh, so the, the, uh, the, the, he has this team and they're gathering materials and there's successes, there are failures. He once had a, a friend of his who was a Yiddish folklorist who had 13 volumes of Yiddish folklore, sayings, jokes, poetry, um, um, dictionaries on the Yiddish language as it evolved. Uh, Ringelblum himself was a Yiddishist. He had three loves, love of the Jewish people, love of the Yiddish language, and love of history. And those, that's what his passions were for life. He worked for the joint, also as a big Baltstuck. He, he actually was in a certain way a Marxist in a not just in the textbook way, in, in practice. One of the rare people who actually gave over his whole life and his whole existence for his fellow fellow Jews, fellow uh, just everything he had. He, he gave to them. He worked for the joint in, in before the war and during the war, in the Warsaw Ghetto. In fact, one of the most incredible things about the Warsaw, about the archive, the Anik Shabbos archive, was that because it's something taken in real time, and because it's not a retrospective analysis. So there's some harsh stuff in that archive. Some very, very harsh accusations against different segments of the Jewish community about what they did and what they didn't do, what they should have done, what they could have done. Things that, had we written about it later, we probably would have wanted to cover up and not mention. And Ringelum wanted that in there. He said, if you want the full picture of Polish Jewry, when he starts the archive, he's not recording a community of destruction. He start, he's recording a living community. And he's saying to himself that we're going to come out of this ghetto one day. The war is going to end. We're going to come out of the ghetto. And we're going to reconstruct Warsaw, Polish, Jewish life as we did before. And we would want to learn from things that happened. And we want to learn from mistakes we made. We want to learn from how people behave under adverse conditions. We want to be able to learn from the past. And the only way to learn from the past is to create a record. As time goes on, and especially after the deportations to Treblinka begin in the summer of 1942, he realizes that the archive is actually recording the destruction of Polish Jewry. 
and he's leaving the archive not for the remnants of Polish Jewry who would rebuild, because he saw there would be no remnants to rebuild. He said he said he's leaving it for the. He didn't he didn't anticipate there would be a Jewish community in Israel. The Jewish community in the United States who would rebuild the Jewish people, and uh, and he bequeathed it to uh, to Yivo, in which he also worked for as a historian in Vilna. So the the Yivo, which is the Jewish Historical Society of Poland, was in, based in Vilna before the war and New York till today after the war, Manhattan. So he uh, he bequeathed to them. Of course, it never ended up there. It's still in Warsaw. And, uh, and it's in the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, but copies of the documents in the uh, uh, Ringelblum Archive are in both Yivo and in, um, here in Yad Vashem. So, no, even more. He, he even more because now we have this, this real responsibility to uh, record the crimes and, and how Jews are reacting to the crime. Yes, yeah, yeah. He keeps a personal diary in addition to all the other work he's doing, and the diaries in the archive. He didn't stop writing the whole time. He he escaped during the uh, during the uprising. He's arrested and sent to Travniki, a concentration camp near Lublin. The Jewish resistance in Warsaw in Warsaw gets him out of Travniki. Him and a group of others, they're able to get them out, bring them back to Warsaw. They put him into hiding. A, Pol- a, Pol- a Polish Catholic risked his life and gave his life to uh, save him and a group of other Jews. The hiding place was discovered and the Polish family and all the Jews inside, including Ringelblum, were killed. At the end of the war, he survived till mid-1944. Um, he, um, he, uh, but his writings all survived. He continued writing in that bunker in Warsaw. After the Warsaw get is destroyed, after... The, the archive he created is under rubble. He writes another book in Polish because he said anyone who speaks Yiddish is already gone. I'm writing this for the Polish people because there's no one else to write for. No textbooks. He writes an academic level book of Polish-Jewish relations throughout history that uh, University of, of, uh, of Nebraska or Indiana Press just reprinted with very minor changes <laughs> in English. How to translate it? Very minor changes. He he did not use sources. He did had no access to textbooks. He writes this in a bunker, underneath the ground, with nowhere, with kids crying and thirty other Jews sitting there in this dark bunker. He writes it on paper that a member of the resistance gave him, and he writes it in Polish. Until today, it's used as an academic source, um, academic level source. He was a professional historian who was very very competent, very talented in many ways, and I'm not coming here to give a hespit on Ringelblum, this is just a part of the story. So what I was getting to was um, uh, he, uh, he, he, uh, he, uh, he and many of the other archivists don't shy away from controversy, because they're recording the whole story, and they're writing about the uh, darker sides of Jewish life in the ghetto as well. Because that's an important part of the story. And if we have to learn from the good and be inspired by the good, we also have to learn from the bad, or at least how it's perceived in real time, um, which, is, which is important. And I remember, as an aside, when I was in a mere yeshiva as a buffer, so Tisha B'Av afternoon, right, in these days, uh, Tisha B'Av afternoon, there was a, a, you know, a bunch of like schmoozing, a bunch of talks from the rabbim and the yeshiva, um, but Tisha B'Av, about churban, about whatever, and uh, one of my rabbis, Rabbi Yisrael Glustein, 
May he live and be well. Is gives this talk, and he starts off. It was, it was, you know, used to Tishabav. Someone's going to talk about Sinas Chinam, and we have to love our fellow Jew. One of these really nice, easy topics. It's Tishabav afternoon. You know, you got to let off. And he says, all year we talk about the binyan of Mir Yeshiva, about how much it's being built and how good everything is, and how we're learning and how everything's so well. Tishabav is a day of Chorban. Today we're going to talk about the Chorban of Mir Yeshiva. And for the next hour, he he ripped into us. You guys are not doing this right. You guys are doing this wrong. You guys have to improve with this. You guys have to improve with that. Criticizing, criticizing. It's a day of Chorban. We talk about Chorban. How could we talk so much negative? You can't have so much negativity. Sometimes they have to be negative. So Ringelblum felt the same way, that we're going to include it for his future historians, and they can take it or leave it. They can see the negative that we're writing, and we're giving the full story as it is. So there's this, this, this really it gives you a real sense of the time. Really, really a a a real a, a real intense and harsh in a way and and powerful more than any other source can give. So we go back to what we said before about the sources we have. This is this this is unparalleled, and that's the question of of the book: is who will write our history? Regelblum and his team decided. We're going to write our history. We're not going to allow the Nazis to write our history. And we're not going to even rely on the few who survived to tell our whole story. We, need, we the victims, need to tell the story ourselves. To give it the, the, the richness of, of it. Rachel Auerbach. So three, three, survive, three members of the archive survived. Hersh Wasser and his wife. I forgot her name. And Rachel Oyerbach, I guess the women have more tenacity. They're able to. So two of the, out of the three were women. Now Hersh Wasser was the only one. Israel Lichtenstein, Israel Lichtenstein, was the one who buried the archive under 68 Novolepki Street in the midst of the Great Deportation. In fact, he heard shots. He writes as he's buried the archive. He writes a quick note, a last will and testament of his own because he got killed a couple of weeks later. And he sticks it in as the last note before he seals the boxes and buries it. And he says, I'm li- I hear shots outside. I mean, they're doing this as, as, as the Nazis are deporting the Jews. It's unbelievable. And they, they felt like they had this mission. And, uh, and, and Lichtenstein told one person, besides for Ringelblum himself, where he buried it. Happens to be that one person survived, Hershwasser. If he had not, we likely we would have never have found the archive. Um, luckily, he did. Um, and uh, and um, um, and Hershwasser and his wife survived the war on the other side of Warsaw. They were hidden by a family. Rachel Auerbach survived in the camps after the uprising. They three of them come back to Warsaw and they search through the rubble. They're searching and searching. A year and a half after the war, they find the first cache of the archive, they gave up on finding the second one. Four years later, 1950, a Polish construction crew is is doing work. You know, Warsaw was the most destroyed city in Nazi Europe, uh, in the whole world, after the war, because it was destroyed about like eight different times during the war. It was bombed. The Nazis bombed it during the Battle of Warsaw, the first month of, the, of World War Two, And then... It is destroyed during the war. The whole area of the ghetto is destroyed during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And then um, uh, a year and, a, and something later, a year and change later, in August 1944, the Polish resistance 
have an Orsa uprising. The the, Pol- the Poles, the, the Polish resistance, the non-Jews, they they rise up against the Nazis, against the occupation, and at the end of that ra- uprising, Himmler Heinrich Himmler gives an order to the SS to wipe the city of Warsaw off the face of this earth. Anyone, any of you ever watched The Pianist? Yeah, so, so have you ever noticed the that where he where he that's essentially the second half of the movie where he's he's like this Robinson Crusoe living in in the bombed out buildings of Warsaw and there's these at one point there's this flamethrower that comes and just burns up the whole building and dynamites the building that's that order that's after the Warsaw uprising the entire city is destroyed <coughs> there's nothing left of the city and there's this Polish construction crew rebuilding an area that used to be the ghetto in 1950, this is five years after the war, and they bump into these big milk cans. And they know that it's the uh, that it's the area of the ghetto. They said, oh, here's where the Jews hid their treasure. And they quickly open the milk cans, and they find papers. Oh, these Jews, the people of the book, instead of hiding gold, they hide, tre- they hide papers. And they're about to just dump it and throw it away. And one, the foreman of the construction site, who we don't even know his name, and he's a hero of Jewish history, because the first part of the archive was only like 40 or 50 percent of the archive. This is another 40, 50 percent of the archive. He says, hey, maybe those papers are important. Who knows? They buried them. Maybe they're important. And, and, uh, and, and, he, gives, and, he, gives, and he gives it to the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw, and lo and behold, it's the second cachet of the archive. What what papers were in that second uh, second uh, bunch, just in case you're wondering? Eh, nothing that important. All the plans for the uprising, all the last diaries that Ringelblum collected, all of Ringelblum's writings, his personal writings himself, and if you're a religious Jew, so we don't care about any of that, all the writings of the Piazzetz and the Rebbe, the Eish comes from that. So we owe the Eish to the, this uh, Polish foreman who decided not to dump these milk cans full of papers into the sewer and instead save them. So luckily we have the Eish today. Because why do we have the, 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 the writings of the Piazetz Narabba? One of the greatest leaders of Polish Jewry, of Hasidic Polish Jewry before the war, Kleinem is Kalman Shapiro. He's the Piazetz Narabba. He's a visionary. He's an educator. He's something that the Hasidic world had never seen before. This modern educator, who understands education psychology, who understands the youth. He's a Hasidic rebel that people were in awe of, his charisma. He essentially almost resigns from being a Hasidic rebel, moves to Warsaw, Piazetsna is the suburb, he moves to Warsaw, opens the yeshiva, becomes a Rosh Yeshiva, because he said, this desperate time of the 1920s and 30s, there's this modernization and secularization, we're losing all the youth I want to invest myself in education, enough with being a rebel. And he gives a daily shear, and he gets a connection to his students, and he writes the Chayvah Satalmidim, which till today educators use because it's so visionary and so progressive and so modern day thinking. He, he was an incredible person. And he's in the, in the, in the, in the Warsaw ghetto. And his Hasidim come to him and said, you have to continue speaking to us in the ghetto. And he gives a Shalashudah Shmuz. There's no herring by the Shalashudas. There's only Chassidus, because there is no food. And he delivers Chassidus every week. And one of uh, Ringelblum's most important archivists on his team, 
Rav Shimon Hoiberband. Well, I'll get to more of because he's the one we, one of you and and and, and Ringelblum loved him. He loved him like like a, like a brother, and they're the two opposites of the spectrum. Ringelblum is this leftist, Marxist, secular, and Huberban is a Hasidish younger man, a rav of a town in the beginning of the war, who escapes the war after his wife and child were killed. Young guy, thirty years old, a rav, Talmud Chacham, a Paisik. And, and a historian. Even before the war, he's fascinated by history. He's writing articles. He's researching. Brilliant man. Very energetic. And him and, 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 and Ringelblum are super close. In fact, one of the most interesting documents in the archive is a hespid that Ringelblum wrote for his good friend of Shimon Huberman when he was sent to Treblinka in 1942, in the summer of 1942. And how he said, we lost one of our greatest members of the archive and uh, his contribution is going to be sorely missed. So, so Huberband is Ringelblum's, one of his main uh, agents to get the religious life of the ghetto. And Huberband knows that the Pitzipiatetzner Rebbe. And he says, Rebbe, Shalashudis Shmuzin, in the ghetto, by you! How could we lose this to history? you got to write them down and give them to me. Okay? And the piece that's the rebel, he's going to write it down, he's going to give what's it. He's giving, trying to give a little chizik to his chassidim in the ghetto. And he listens to Huberban. And he writes down every single shmuz. Not only that, he dates them. Wow. Now, dating them gives us a sense of the Piyatetzna Rebbe's thinking of what the message needs to resonate with his chassidim as things get progressively worse in the ghetto. And, 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 and that becomes what we know as the Eish Kaidish. That's his Shmuzin. So we have Huberband, we have Ringelblum who creates the archive. We have Huberband who gets to the Piyatessner Rebbe, tells him, please write them down by Tishabas and give them to me. And then we have the, them being hidden in the archive by the team. We have the Polish foreman who discovers it, because it's in the second cache of the archive in 1950. And now we have the Eish Kaidish, we can learn from the Piyatessner Rebbe. And those originals exist. You go to the Jewish Historical Institute. I remember someone who I knew was a, loved the Piyatetzner Rebbe's writings and he studied them all his life. We came to Warsaw. I said, I'm going to take you on a different tour than anyone else. I'm, who goes to the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw on the tour? tour you want to see things. You know? Go to an institute. It sounds like you're institutionalized if you go to an institute. See, no one goes there. Him I brought there. His group I brought there. And he, he can't hold them because they're in, under a glass case. But you're looking at the the Piyatetznerev's own handwriting, and and he's 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 putting it there, and and it's like you're touching history. It's unbelievable. It's from that that milk can where they buried it, and uh, it's interesting. Once we mention the Piyatetznerev in these writings, so when the people who the same way. That Ringelblum included all the bad and everything in the bad, all the negative and all the critique and all the harsh realities in the ghetto. He included it in the archive. The Piyatetzner Rebbe, he, he's, whatever he said, he wrote, right? And the people who published, who published the, the, uh, the, his Talmidim in, in Israel, who published it in the 1950s, they left out a few things, you know, they, and things that they felt weren't comfortable to be included in the Eish Kaidish. Okay, that's the Eish Kaidish that we use like for you what? Have an example? So I'll give one example that's that's more more about uh, um, 
about form than substance, because substance would be going into the whole Hasidus, it would make too much. I'll give it about form, about, about his style. Um, I'll give one example in a second. So, a couple of years ago, uh, Dr. Daniel uh, something or another from Barilan, he did something that you don't even really need a historian for. He said, let me go back to the Ringelblum archive, take the original writing of Pete Setzner Rebbe, and rewrite the Eish Kodesh word for word. Right? He's not using any other sources. Just something. And what we got from that, wow! And it's a two-volume. You can see, get, buy it today, the Ish Kodesh, something or another. He has footnotes and all kinds of stuff on the bottom. But 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 it's just the original Ish Kodesh. And, uh, and, um, and one of the, just one insignificant example, but it's, 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 it's one of the last entries of the Ish Kodesh. He signs off. When he finishes a piece, he signs off on it. And he writes his name, Kleinum is Shapiro. He writes, Admar Piazetsna, and he crosses it out. In other words, he came back to it later and crossed it out. And, and from other things that he wrote at that time, which is more substance, we understand that he no longer saw himself as the, uh, the Piazetsna Rabbah. He said, the Nazis have so completely destroyed Jewish life here in Warsaw and in Poland that I'm not a Rebbe anymore. A Rebbe is someone who has a Chatzar, who has Hasidim, who can interact. He said, I've lost everything. And, and he literally blots out his name as the Piyotetzna Rebbe. Now that's, that's, that's incredible. It goes into the thinking of the hopelessness at the time, of, of, of how people saw themselves and in their titles, and in their careers, and in their mission in, in the world, at that last, it was a couple of months before he was killed. And, and, and that's a very big insight. Now, in the printed edition, of course, that doesn't appear. We, we don't want to think of the Piazzetz the Rebbe as someone who relinquished his title, right? But historically, this is very important, right? So that's just one, again, like I said, in style, not in the, in the teichen, not in the, in the actual substance. So... So we really have this uh, this rich. Um, I'm going to read just a couple of passages now. Again, this is there's, this is a book about the archive, right? And and uh, and uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't get any commission or royalties on the book. I'm not trying to like sell it. I just happen to think that it will be interesting to share uh, some of the passages. First of all, what were the goals? What were the goals of his archive? We I spoke about it a lot, but here it's from one of the diarists of the archive, saying the goal. There's this woman, um, her name is uh, uh, something, Yaretska. Gustava Yaretska, a leftist woman, Jewish author, who, who wrote in Polish. She didn't even write in Yiddish. But uh, she's one of she. She also had connections with the Judenrat, so that he was able to get a lot of documents from the Warsaw Judenrat because of that, which is also important. The Jewish leadership, the Nazi-appointed Jewish leadership, who had one of the most difficult jobs in Jewish history because they're between a rock and a hard place. Are they the leaders of the Jewish community, or are they the puppets of the Nazis? And anything they do is going to make someone angry. If they're carrying out Nazi orders, then the Jewish community will hate them, which is what usually happens. If they decide to defy the Nazis and really be there for the Jews, then the Nazis will have them killed, which is also what happened. In the Minsk ghetto, there were three, there were three uh, uh, Judenrats, because the Minsk ghetto, the Minsk Jews, Jewish leadership decided they're not going to listen to the Nazis, they're going to they're warn them of anything that happens. 
So the Nazis simply killed them. And the third, the third Judenrat was a bunch of criminals from the underworld who happened to be Jews, and they carried out the Nazi orders. But in other ghettos, the, the Judenrat tried to do whatever they could. So she got a lot of documents. She was like a secretary there. She worked. She wasn't on the Judenrat, but she was able to smuggle out a lot of documents from the Judenrat, and they got into the archive as well. But she writes about the goals. She says, the record must be hurled like a stone under history's wheel in order to stop it. One can lose all hopes except the one that the suffering and the destruction of war, of this war, will make sense when they are looked at from a distant historical perspective. From sufferings unparalleled in history, from bloody tears and bloody sweat, a chronicle of days of hell is being composed which will ex- help explain the historical reasons for why people came to think as they did and why regimes arose that caused such suffering. So what is she saying? I love the metaphor. She's throwing a stone, hurled like a stone under history's wheel. The wheels of history. We use that term all the time. And history moves. Now if we throw a stone under that wheel, we stopped it. And we forced that wheel to reckon with something that we put there. We can place a stone in its path. And now the stone, and whatever message that stone is, is, contains, it, it becomes a component of that journey. It's there on the wheel. There's no way to get around it now. So you succeed in doing something. You're a contributor to history. You're living in history. And you can do actions, leave a record. You can do things that create the historical record. And what what they're doing is consciously creating it. They're there to make sure that their story is told. Rachel Oyerbach, who's one of the only survivors of the of the uh, of the archive, and she spoke about it for the rest of her life. She worked in Yad Vashem after the war. Hirschwasser and his wife lived here in Israel also, but they spoke about it less. And uh, Rachel Oyerbach um, devoted her life to it and 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 she kept a diary, right? So during the war. So she, she, we don't even just have what she spoke about it afterwards as a survivor, right? The survivor. We have with her, we have both. We have what she wrote during the war. We could even compare how it works. Um, but uh, the, um, the, the, she, in her diary, she writes, um, 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 the Nazis have come in with photographers today. And they're, they're, those pictures are going to tell the Nazis' story about the Warsaw Ghetto. But we have our photographers, and they're putting photographs into the into the uh, archive. Now, most of those photographs, hundreds, were lost because water seeped in to there. So photographs are much more sensitive than than writings. Even the writings were hard, some of them were hard to decipher, but it's easy. You can figure out from context what the words are. Photographs, if they're ruined, they're ruined. But about 60, 70 photographs survived, and they tell a different story. Do you think the Nazis? took any pictures of the store selling matzah before Pesach on the street in the Warsaw Ghetto? In this book, he brings a picture like that. Now, that means that Jews maintained their religion. That means they had a underground matzah bakery. That means they got the flour and the means to create it. And then they went ahead and sold it openly in a store before Pesach that Eden should be able to keep Pesach in the ghetto. With one photograph, we have an entire story. A picture tells a thousand words. And the Nazis would never have a picture like that. Because the Nazis were taking pictures of dying Jews of typhus on the streets of Warsaw, 
so that they could send it back to newspapers in Germany to show what vile creatures the Jews are. No one's going to mention how they got into the ghetto in the first place, and that's why they have typhus, but we're going to leave that aside. Then look how the Jews live. This is why they need to be exterminated. This is, they live disgusting, and there's lice, and there's, there's typhus. Ugh! And look what the Nazi Aryan race is getting rid of these people. So it's for propaganda purposes. That doesn't tell the story of who these people are and how they're living their lives. He has pictures of something that if the Nazis would have seen, they would have killed the people involved. So we, the Nazis obviously wouldn't have pictures of it. Of children smuggling food to their families through holes in the wall of the ghetto. Right? Now these are just the photographs. Not even the documents. But that's hurling a stone under history's wheel. Now, um, another... Um, So he has a few pages in the book devoted to Reb Shimon Huberband because, because Huberband was one of the most important archivists in the ghetto and, and Ringelblum really trusted him to bring the perspective of religious life. And one of the things Huberband writes about is the role of rabbis in the ghetto, which is an interesting thing. Because essentially he said, Huberband writes in his diary that essentially all religious life as we normally know it comes to an end in the ghetto, right? Shuls are illegal, there are underground shuls. Um, let's think of normal questions that a rabbi gets. Can I carry in the Eruv? Well, that doesn't seem to be a very fundamental question in the ghetto, not because of the wall around the ghetto, so there is an Eruv anyway, that's not why. I'm talking about because that's not what's too concerning to people. I dropped a milchik spoon into my fleshik pot. That also becomes irrelevant in the ghetto because there's no milchiks or fleshiks. You're lucky if you get a few potatoes to eat. Right? So, the normal halakhic questions that arise from day-to-day Jewish life, how about married life? Mikvahs are closed. There's no mikvahs. Married life, normal married life comes to an end. In fact, there was another rabbi in the Warsaw Ghetto, Rabbi Shul Moshe Aronson, who made a psaq that no one should get married in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, first of all, why did he have to make that upset? That means there are Jews who wanted to get married. Can you imagine? Wanted to continue having a normal life. That's incredible. Not only that, there were other rabbis who, who Rabbi Shumash of Aronson is fighting with, who's disputing, that said, yes, they should continue to get married because we need to give people a sense of hope and continuity and you can still build families. It'll give it... And Rabbi Shumash of Aronson, he gives about eight different reasons, six or seven different reasons why they should not get married. And one of them is is because you're guaranteeing that they will not live a halachic life because since there are no mikvahs in the ghetto, then the women won't be able to go to the mikvah. So that means that they're not going to be able to live together in a kosher way. So so how can we allow marriages to start like that without any kedusha? So Huberband is writing there that all the normal questions, the normal rabbinic life, religious life don't exist. So he said, and yet rabbis are as busy as ever. And he writes examples of the questions they're getting. He said people are coming to the rabbis, should they fast on Yom Kippur? Is it, or is it too much of a risk to their life? He said, what should they do about Pesach? They, 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 first of all, how to conduct a Seder. There's no wine. There was matzah we saw, but not everyone was able to get. It's very expensive. There's no meat. And, and, and very often the only food they had was chametz. So how do they conduct Pesach? Um, they have questions about, a very interesting question, about going to forced slave labor, going to work, 
That's for slavery. Slavery is in the concentration camps. Here and there in the ghetto. Going to work on Shabbos. Now, here's the question. The question is, right now, today, if you ask me about Shabbos morning, to get up and go to work, Pikuach Nefesh, I'm not going to die today. I have enough food today. I have enough strength for today. I have enough food for today. So if I don't go to work, I'm not going to die. So you say, oh, it's not Pikuach Nefesh. On the other hand, you say, but if I don't go to work, then I'm not going to have this job. And eventually I'm going to starve. So is it going to be Pikuach Nefesh? Is that enough of a reason to work on Shabbos? And many, many other similar questions. So what is this? And he, and he puts there a whole list of questions that rabbis are being asked in the ghetto. So what does it tell us? First of all, the creativity of the rabbis of how they're able to implement new systems of halacha. These are not what they were trained for in rabbinical school. When they got their smicha, they were learning all about the milchik spoons falling into the fleshik pot. That's what they were learning. And here, all of a sudden, they're asked these life and death questions, these very serious questions. And the rabbis were able to come up with answers. You know what else it tells us? About all those anonymous Warsaw Jews who continued to ask their rabbi who continue to follow religious life and halachic life under those circumstances, and 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 they continued asking. Now, um, he... Um, I'm trying to read a passage. Um, where is it? Discreet and careful, he was afraid to first write in notebooks. He would scribble his essays in the margins of his holy books. In other words, his Gemara. That's where he kept it. And then those Gemaras made it into the archive. But then he eventually started writing on, uh, on, on, on notebooks. No one in the Einig Shabbos archive worked on as a wider range of topics as Huberband. Religious life, labor camps, ghetto folklore, Jewish women, Jewish life under the Soviet occupation. And, and um, he, he records, Huberman shared with Ringelblum the conviction that the Einig Shabbos bore a special responsibility to record the German destruction of Jewish synagogues, cemeteries, artwork, and markers of material culture. In a diary entry of February 27, 1941, Ringelblum remarked that when the Germans forced Jews to destroy a historical Torah ark in the synagogue of Plonsk, they were also trying to erase the physical evidence of the centuries of Jewish life in Eastern Europe in order to show that the Jews were an alien element and had no claims to live in Poland. For his part, Huberband wrote a special report for the Einig Shabbos listing what had been destroyed up to then and the steps Jews might take to hide Svarim documents and artifacts to preserve Sifrei Torah. Um, and he writes about his how he got from the from the Piazzetz Nereba, um, and then he writes about some harsh things also, and writes what the Tyra has to say about people who act not nice to other Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he's the only one who gives a Tyra Dika perspective. The Talmud permits the killing of informers, someone who informs on what 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 Jews are doing to the Nazis, and it is also the opinion of the Shulchan Aruch. In the responsa of, Reb, of, Reb, of the Rush, one of the great Rishayim, it is mentioned that the Rush ordered an informer's tongue cut off to prevent him from continuing his murderous activity. Activity, In the response 
of the Maharam of Lublin. The fact is noted that in the days of Reb Shachna of Lublin, Jewish informers were drowned in the local mikvah. That's what the Maharam writes, and he's quoting it. He said, but today there aren't enough mikvahs to suffice for all the Jewish informers in Warsaw. So that's, bam! There he, he, he gives it as, uh, as that this, there was a big problem of informers. Um, he uh, writes about Kiddush Hashem. He, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm just trying to find it. He writes, the Rav of Vladava, Rav Ram Mordechai, Morocco. On the second day of September 1940, a group of officers entered the rabbi's home and carried out a search. During the search, they found a Sefer Taira. They ordered the rabbi to tear apart the scroll or else they would burn him alive. The rabbi refused. They poured gasoline on his body and set fire to him alive. When the rabbi was transformed into a blazing torch, they threw the Torah scroll on top of him. The rabbi and the Torah were burned together. Now an act of Kiddush Hashem like that is only matched by the Asara Haruge Malchus, what we're going to describe in one of the kinnis of Tishba, Rabbi Chanina bin Trajan. That's how he's killed by the Romans. We would never know this story. We would never know that there's historical parallels throughout history of Rabbanim in Poland doing the same exact thing, dying in the same way, because I refuse to tear apart a Sefer Torah. And I'll let the Nazis burn me alive with the Sefer Torah rather than tear it apart. But Huberman got that story in. And Ringelblum made sure it's in the archive. And that's why these things are so important. And I need to finish up here. Let me read the whole book, you know. Um, another passage I put aside here. Um, in May 1942, on the eve of the Jewish holiday of Shavuos, the Germans hanged ten Jews in the market square in Zidunska Vola. Now again, these are from outlying communities. Refugees make it to the Warsaw Ghetto, and Ringelblum and his team interview them to find out, we don't want to know just what's going on in Warsaw, we need to know the whole Poland. In fact, the Jews who escape from Treblinka or other places of mass murder, and they report their findings to the Ringelblum archive, that's the first knowledge that, that gets to the world, because Ringelblum smuggles that information out with the Polish resistance who get it to the Polish government in exile in London, who call a press conference at the BBC at the end of 19, in December 1942. So Ringelblum's information, he has a shortwave radio, and he writes in his diary, today I heard on the BBC uh, about the destruction of Polish Jewry, and it's the numbers that we submitted the Polish, to the Polish resistance, so I know that it is the Einig Shabbos' information that is helping get the... Uh, so we have in there, in the archive, reports about Treblinka, about Sobibor, about Chelmno, but all this, he's, he's recording the destruction. So he has this story of the, the ten Jews uh, in, in, who are hung in Zedunska Vala on Shavuos, including the pious Gera Chassid Shlomo Zelachovsky. According to eyewitness accounts, Zelachovsky told his fellow Jews that they should be happy to have the chance to die al Kiddush Hashem. On their last night, he led them in the Yom Kippur prayers on Shavuos and suggested that they say the concluding service of Ne'ilah just before the Germans led them to the gallows. As the Jewish population of the town stood and watched, Zelachovsky went to his death singing his prayers. So this is, this is another story that makes it into the archive. And, and Ringelblum is teaching us something and he writes about and his, his team writes about we generally look at the Warsaw Ghetto and all these ghettos, 
as a story of the Holocaust. The Nazis exterminated Jews in the gas chambers. Some Jews survive in concentration camps. And before that, they're in ghettos. So it's a preparatory stage. But what's interesting is that's not how the victims saw it. They saw it as, we lived the Jewish life before the war. We continued to struggle to live that life in the ghetto. And then the Nazis came and killed us all and sent us to the gas chambers. And what the Ayinik Shabbos archive, is, it gives them that story. Is the stage of the ghetto a prequel to the, prequel to the gas chambers? Or is it the last chapter of a thousand years of Polish Jewish history? And I think that it's the latter. And I think that this archive helps us understand that this is a story of the greatest Jewish community in the world. And it's the people the vic- who, people who are about to be victims trying to continue to live their lives in the increasingly worse conditions of the Warsaw Ghetto. And as it gets worse and worse, they're struggling more and more to maintain family life, religious life, economic life, education, everything. And he's gathering the materials. Tell us the story. Tell us the story of how Polish Jews are living during this time until they're all gone. And that's Israel Lichtenstein, who's hiding the the uh, the um, the uh, archive in the last days of the deportation. As Israel Lichtenstein buries the first Kasheva archive in 1942, he concluded his testament with the following words. We are the redeeming sacrifice for the Jewish people. I believe that the nation will survive. We, the Jews of Eastern Europe, are the redeemers of the people of Israel. End quote. And Kasov, the author of the book, he continues, at the very end of his life, Lichtenstein reaffirmed his belief in the future of the Jewish people. That's us. And he reminded posterity that Jews were not just victims. They were people and part of a living and resilient nation. So Ringelblum also believed, and so his legacy, which is the legacy of the Oynik Shabbos archive, reminds us today. And since they're writing it for us, they're writing it to teach us about who they were, and there's so much that we can learn, and so much that we can incorporate and be inspired by, and learn the lessons from into our lives, and we should all merit to do so, both in these these days of heaviness and churban, and throughout the rest of the year. Thank you.